semester we're going through a series on the Old Testament of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And um, Exodus is known for its main character, Moses. And uh, where we've come so far in the book of Exodus is that God has, God's people, Israel, have been enslaved in Egypt for around 400 years or so. And God has promised long before that that he would uh, use them to save the world and that he was going to bring them to a good land where he could establish them and use them for his ultimate plan which is to save the world and uh, so far it hasn't gone well at all he's called Moses to go to Pharaoh and have his people freed and Pharaoh has made things worse and he's not responding to Moses at all even though God told Moses to go and so Moses doesn't know what's going on and the people of Israel don't know what's going on. And so what the passage we come to tonight, we're going to look at, a, uh, if we had more time, we would look at chapters 7 through 10. We're just going to look at two excerpts from those, uh, which is uh, the 10 plagues that God brings on Egypt to bring his people, to finally get Pharaoh to let his people go free. And so what we're going to read is we're going to read plagues 1 and 9 tonight. And the ultimate, the uh, pinnacle is number 10, which we'll look at next week. It's the Passover, a really important story in the Bible. So definitely come back next week. But uh, tonight we're just going to look at these short excerpts uh, as the plagues begin in Egypt. So uh, first in Exodus 7 and then in Exodus 10. Uh, okay. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that, you turned, into a, that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness." But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And now in chapter 10, starting in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone arise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say. 
I will not see your face again. Okay, let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful that you show us who you are in it. Uh, We are thankful that you draw near to us in it. And we pray tonight, uh, some of us are tired, others of us uh, barely made it here tonight. Others of us are eager to hear from you. Others of us are confused by you and what you're doing in our lives. Uh, We pray that you'd meet us where we are. Uh, Speak to us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I wonder what you think, what your gut reaction is to the passages we just read here tonight. Because these are plagues of judgment that God is bringing on the people of Egypt. And the thing about judgment is that we either love it and we, we love, like, you know, people are getting what they deserve. Some of us are like that. Like, I want the bad people to get what they deserve. And others of us are the opposite. And we say, you know, like, this is why I hate telling people I'm a Christian. Because they say, like, oh, you believe in this, like, primitive stuff, right? Like, I, you know, I hate that this is part of... Or maybe if you're here and you're not a Christian, you think, like, yeah, this is exactly why I don't believe because of things like plagues and judgment. Like, what is that about? Um, And we're going to look at that tonight, but what you need to see about the plagues that God brings on Egypt in the book of Exodus is that the plagues are really an answer to a question. Um, We don't, we're not going to read it tonight, but in chapter 5, as Moses is pleading with Pharaoh to let his people go, uh, Pharaoh asks this very simple question. He says, you know, Moses is saying, let us go that we may worship the Lord. And Pharaoh just goes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And the plagues are the response to that question. And really, that's the question for everyone, right? Uh, You know, no matter where you stand in terms of faith tonight, uh, surely you're asking the question, how can, can God really be my everything? Can he really be so central that everything else takes a backseat to him? Uh, And so that's the question we're going to look at. Who is the Lord that we should obey him uh, from these plagues? And what we're going to see is that the Lord is unique, that he's foundational, and that he's a savior. Uh, that's the response that the plagues bring. And so first of all, we're going to look at the idea of him being unique. Egypt had lots of gods. If you ever took like sixth grade social studies or something like that, you might have learned about an Egyptian god or two uh, or the Egyptian culture. And they had a god for almost everything. Uh, And, you know, things like the uh, sun or the river or the storms or the agriculture and so pharaoh's question wouldn't be why should i obey a god he's not an atheist his question would is more getting at why should i obey this god your god moses and most people today i would say have the same question right uh, at UConn, if you've been around UConn a while, then you know that there are plenty of atheists at UConn, but there's a lot more people out there who have no problem with the idea of God and religion as long as it's not exclusive, right? So as long as, you know, 
you, you might hear people say things like, oh, well, you're a Christian, I'm glad that seems to work for you. Or you might hear people say, everyone, well, I have my truth and you have your truth. Or you might hear people say, there's, act, there's lots of ways to God. And uh, so people don't so much have a problem with the idea of religion and God so much as they have a problem with uh, this God, this one God. Uh, and the second you start talking about that one way to God, you'll find that most people have a problem with that. And uh, so really, Yukon students are a lot like Pharaoh, which makes this passage very relevant to us tonight. And what you need to see, first of all, is that uh, that statement, there's many ways to God, that's a religious statement. Uh, that's an absolute statement. And it's really no different than saying there's one way to God. Because if, you know, if I come up to you and say, I actually know that there's more than one, there's many ways to God, uh, all you have to say is, well, how do you know? Um, all you, it, what, what's going on there is that, um, you know, if I say there's many ways to God, I'm saying, like, I have some special knowledge of the truth that you might not have. You see how that's a religious statement just as much as saying there's one way to God is? Um, so there's a problem with that logic, uh, because if there's more than one way to God, how do you know and I don't? But in our passage, God, the Lord, shows his uniqueness among all other gods and how does he do it? He, he does it through the plagues. He does it by taking down the Egyptian gods. Because um, Egyptians had the god of the sun and the god of the river and the god of the fields and uh, of the storms. And so what did the plagues look like? God of the river, river turned to blood. God of the agriculture, hailstorm. God of, uh, you know, Fill in the blank, nature, darkness. Um, the plagues dismantle the Egyptian gods. Uh, God, the Lord himself takes down the Egyptian gods. Now, why is he doing it? He's doing it to show his uniqueness among all other gods. Now, you might be someone that says, "There's, yeah, I agree with what you were saying before. There are multiple ways. There's many ways to God. And first, if you think that, I'm glad you're here. And I want you to feel totally welcome here. Uh, really glad you're here, really glad uh, to be part of the discussion with you. Uh, but, you know, many of you might be here and might agree, you know, there is only one way to God. I believe, I believe that Jesus is the only way to God. But if we were to look at your calendar, or if we were to look at your bank statements, or if we were to look at your internet browser history, would that evidence seem to affirm that belief? Would that agree with what you say? Or would that indicate that there's a lot of things that you view as central? That there's a lot of things that you view as ultimate ways to happiness? Um, a lot of Christians bash people that don't believe, but a lot of us Christians oftentimes, oftentimes live like unbelievers ourselves, or at least people that think, there's a lot of ways to God. There's a lot of ways to fulfillment. Uh, as we look at this passage, we need to hear God saying to us, I am God, and money is not. I am God, and sex is not. I am God, and comfort and status and reputation are not. 
because he's showing us his uniqueness here among all other gods. Um, and then he goes on to show us that he's foundational. And this is kind of a, this is an, I love this idea of him being foundational. It's so interesting because if you look at the plague, we didn't read all the plagues. There's nine plagues. But one of the interesting things about them is that they're all pretty natural um, for instance, after the, you know, after the Nile is turned to blood, the next plague is that there's a plague of gnats. No, 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 there's a plague of frogs after that. And, you know, that makes sense, right? Because if they can't be in the Nile, then of course the frogs will be all over the land. And then the frogs die, and the next plague is a plague of gnats. And the next plague is a plague of flies. And so you don't have to be a genius to think about that and think like, okay, there's something going on here that seems to be like kind of a natural flow, if you will. Um, it would be easy for Pharaoh to say, of, well, of course there's the plague of frogs. Like, they can't be in the Nile anymore. Of course there's gnats everywhere. Look at all these dead frogs on the ground. But I want you to think about what, it, if that's true, what it shows us about God. And what it shows us is that he's foundational. He's at the center of everything in the world. Uh, there's a lot that God does in our world that goes unnoticed because of how foundational and central he is to everything in the world. It's kind of like gravity, you know? People lived on this earth for a long, long time, throwing things up and watching them come down before someone came along and discovered what gravity was and how cool it actually is and what it means for our universe and all this stuff. But you didn't need to know that to know, like, you know, if it goes up, it comes down. It's natural. Um, and God is, that way, God is that way where you can kind of presume upon things that he does not realizing that he's at the center of all of them not realize how foundational he is um, so if God is foundational then and he's a judge he's depicted as a judge here what does his judgment look like and what you need to see is oftentimes you know judgment in our lives I'm talking about what you need to see is oftentimes it looks very natural it looks like basically what our world would look like if he wasn't, if he pulled his hand away, if he wasn't there. So thinking about your own life, you know, if you were to leave here tonight and decide, you know what, Lucas is wrong. Lucas doesn't know what he's talking about. Um, God is not central. And you say, you know what is central though? My future, setting myself up, getting good grades, you know, Big picture, getting set up comfortably in life. That's what's central to me. And so if you leave here and you live that way, you know, grades will be very important to you and reputation will be important to you and you'll live for those things. And what's, what's not going to happen if you do that, God's not going to, like, make you slip on ice tomorrow because you decide to live that way. That's not the way God judges people but what judgment could look like from God is that you know you may make grades everything in your life and what might happen is that um, your relationships start to suffer 
And what might happen is that you might be tired all the time because you're not sleeping well. And what might happen is that you become anxious and nervous about everything. And what might happen is that you might not eat well and your diet gets all messed up and you'll feel really alone and on and on and on. All these kind of natural outworkings of a central thing which is saying, God is not God. My future is God. My comfort is God. Um, And interestingly, if you look at the plagues, what the plagues uh, are mirroring is the creation of the world. Uh, In the beginning, in the book before Exodus, the book of Genesis, God creates the world, and in the beginning there's darkness, and God brings order out of darkness, and he pieces it together into this beautiful creation. And what we see happening in the plagues is the creation disintegrating because of God's judgment, and it culminates in this darkness. It's the creation going to chaos because God is removing his hand. Um, The Lord, this Lord is the creator, and to live without him as central, without him as foundational, will mess everything up in your life. I promise you that. That's what this is teaching. Uh, A few years ago, my family went on a vacation and we, uh, we actually went to Europe for like a week, and we flew. This was before I even knew Maggie, so there were me and my parents and my brother and his wife, five of us, and we rented a minivan for the week. And at the end, of, we, we didn't do too much driving. We rented it at the airport, and we used it to get around to a few places. And at the end of the week, we returned the minivan, and we realized, you know, when you return a rental car, you have to fill it back up with gas, right? Uh, before you return it and so we went and filled it back up with gas and the gas station was probably like a mile or so from the airport and so as we're driving that mile what we notice is that the van is starting to like lurch really bad and uh, it like barely makes it to the rental car place and as we're kind of like sputtering in the thought comes to everyone's mind, like, this is a diesel van, isn't it? And we just filled it up with ga- regular gasoline. And, uh, you know, thankfully, we, they actually sent my dad, like, a huge bill for it later. We didn't tell them then, and it was horrible. But, uh, you know, the van was designed for, ga- for diesel fuel, and we had put gasoline into the van, and everything got messed up. Um, as you think about this idea of obeying God, doing what God wants, obeying his commands, you need to think about it in terms of putting the right fuel in the right machine. Um, You need to think about God's law is good. The things God tells us to do are good because it's part of our design. And we will deteriorate And our world, as we can see, if you look at the news, duh, it's deteriorating uh, because it is not, we are not in line with the way God has designed us in lots of ways. All of us are this way. Um, God doesn't want, you know, what are the things God wants us to do? He wants us to love each other and serve each other and love him and worship him and pray. And, you know, we know these things, right? Read your Bible, go to church, be a part of a group like RUF. These are all things God likes, but he doesn't like these things because he loves like watching people jump through a bunch of hoops to make him happy. He wants you to do those things because you were made 
for that. You were made for community. You were made to know him intimately. Uh, You were made to treat other people with respect, and you were made to be respected by other people. The world is made that way. And when when God becomes unfoundational, uh, everything starts to fall apart, and the plagues are a picture of that. As God uh, enacts his judgment, basically by removing his hand. So uh, God is unique, and he's foundational, but he's also a savior. And this is the point you really, this is what makes him ultimately unique, is that he's also a savior. And you can know, you know, everything I just said, like, that's a pretty good motivation to live the right way, right? Like, we should want, like, God's law is good. And I think it's easy to see that and say, like, yeah, I should live the right way and make these things important. But that alone will not be enough for you. To know that will not change you. You know, when things get tough, you will forget that, I promise you, unless you know that God, this, the Lord, is a Savior. Um, one of the things you'll notice if you go back and read Exodus 7 through 10 and look at all the plagues, and even some of these, um, you would notice that the plagues could really be like a lot worse than they are. For instance, like... Moses tells him what he's going to do beforehand so that these people, the Egyptians, can prepare if they want to. Uh, so much so that in, one of the, in chapter 9, there's a plague of hailstones, massive hailstones that do all kinds of damage. And before that plague, Moses says to Pharaoh, like, there's going to be hail and you need to get your livestock undercover and all your servants undercover because there's going to be a big plague of hail. Um, what does that show us about God? It shows us that he's a savior and even the plagues, these you know, horrible plagues are designed to save. They're, they're, they're sent to save and they save in a, lot of, a few different ways. First of all, you know, God's people are saved through them, right? God's people get to leave Egypt because of the plagues. But even more so, um, in chapter 9, God says to Pharaoh, like, the reason there's a bigger story behind this, these plagues, I've raised you up so that one day my name will be proclaimed throughout the earth. In other words, one day there's going to be a group of Yukon students hearing about my salvation uh, going, you know, thousands of years ahead in time. Uh, this, I'm going to use this to reveal myself to the world. The whole world can be saved through this. And, you know, even, they're even designed to wake up the Egyptians, right? Uh, he, they give, get warning before each plague. And that's why he's unique. Uh, God is unique because he's a savior. Uh, even his judgment is meant to save. And that idea of judgment meaning to save culminates thousands of years after this. Um, there's another time where darkness comes. So this last ninth plague is darkness. And thousands of years later, hundreds, about 1,200 years later, there's darkness again. You can read, it about, it, read about it in the New Testament. 
in Matthew's gospel, as Jesus dies on the cross, it says that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from noon to three, darkness came over the land of Israel as Jesus is suffocating to death on the cross. What's going on there on that cross is that on the cross, Jesus is becoming the enemy of God. Jesus is becoming the enemy of God so that God can save. On the cross, Jesus experiences that undoing of creation, that disintegration of uh, the creation of the world. And so he's experiencing all the chaos of a godless world unleashed on him on that cross all at once. In other words, the ultimate plagues of God, the ultimate judgment of God doesn't fall on anyone like us. It falls on his own son. It it falls on God incarnate on the cross. And as a result, we, those of us that trust in Jesus, those of us that lean on him, can never be judged. We can never face anything remotely like what's going on here. We can never face the idea of God removing his hand and allowing chaos to ensue because we have Jesus. In our passage, we see this God and he enacts judgment, but what it ultimately points to is that in order to save us, the judge himself had to endure his own judgment. The creator is in a sense uncreated on the cross. For us, how will that change you? What does that mean for us practically? I think I'll, I'll just give you a couple things in closing. First of all, like that will enable us to obey and do these good things that we talk about, but to do it freely. Um, we can obey, not, but not as if our life depends on it. Not as if, you know, God's going to make us slip on ice if we don't. The judgment has already come. You know, what the cross means is that the judgment, if you have Jesus, the judgment is in on you, and it's a good one. And that means you can obey freely. Another thing it means is that we can pursue our future with a purpose besides setting ourselves up. We can pursue our future without, uh, you know, thinking so much about, well, I want to make sure I'm comfortable 10 years from now. I want to be able to have an easy life. Uh, We can pursue that future because the judgment is in already. The end of the story, in other words, has been written about you, and it's a good one. And so instead of living for ourselves and living to feel good and look good and have everything, we can live for the good of the world. We can live so that uh, others might be made to know that there's a God who saves, that there's a God who's unique and foundational and yet uh, saves people who wander from him.
I'm going to close by praying that God would uh, be at work to make us that way. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, you uh, are better than we can imagine. And uh, the best thing about you is this uh, idea that you are a Savior. Uh, That though you are powerful and holy and foundational, and all-knowing that you are also a God who draws near to his people and saves. Uh, We pray that you would save us. We pray uh, that you would be at work to uh, change our hearts so that we don't so quickly run to those things that uh, we think will give us ultimate comfort and peace, but instead that you would help us to run to you. Uh, We pray that you would shape how we live uh, rather than Uh, a lot of other things shaping our approach to you. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.